Hi everyone, my name's Liam, and welcome back to another episode of Cinerealm. Today, for today's episode, I thought we would take a look at a TV show that I've watched recently. Um, it's I've There's been one season of it already, and it's in season two now. And it's the Amazon Prime exclusive show, The Boys. As I said, it's in season two at the moment. I think at the time of recording this, it's on episode two. No, sorry, episode four. It's on episode four. I watched episode four on Friday, and I'm loving, I'm loving season two so far. As I love season one, hence why I'm, hence why I'm making a podcast on it. But season two is a separate podcast for a separate day. Today we're just going to be focusing on season one and a couple of strong talking points around that season, particularly themes and characters and plot lines, which I took away from it and I found myself particularly interesting. So, The Boys is essentially, in the most abstract of terms, about superheroes who abuse their powers. And this interests me because, as I will talk about in other episodes, I'll probably do segments on Watchmen as well, and maybe perhaps mem- the sort of nightmare scene from Batman vs Superman. I, I think I have talked a little bit about with the DC fandom episode with the Justice League. It it excites me because I like the idea, not necessarily anti-heroes or not necessarily vigilantes, but of the storylines where you have enhanced individuals. Enhanced individuals who are capable of doing things that the average man or woman isn't. For example, you've one of the characters, or a couple of characters, can fly, one of them can run really fast, one of them can control light, etc. It's, it's little things like that that separate them from everyone else. And what if... What if you knew that you were one of the most powerful beings in the world? And there was no one who could actually stop you. And you realised that. And you started to abuse your powers. You, you started to realise that, hang on a minute, I can um, I can actually take a bit more control here. I can, I can, I can you know, have, have more of a grip on the world around me. I can, I can do what the hell I want. To quote a character who will who we'll talk about in a little bit. That's what's so interesting about it. It's it's taking this idea of someone who should be a hero to us, who is in a position to do good things that the average person can't, i.e. stopping a train or rescuing someone who falls off a cliff or a bridge. It's playing God. And it's then playing God for a more malicious purpose that I find so intriguing, really. And that's just that's what inspired me to watch because I was looking for I was looking for something in this market because around around the time of obviously there there were a lot of adverts for season two, etc. And I was I was always intrigued by it. I was always intrigued by this show and I was like you know what, I think I'll give it a go. And it's based off a comic book as well. You guys know how much I love comic books. Written by Derek Robertson and Gareth Ennis. 
which was, a, I think, about a 12-volume comic book. And then it was obviously developed by Eric Kripke for Amazon. And Eric Kripke actually created the show Supernatural, which, from some people I know who've watched it, they say it's very good. But I haven't seen it personally. But I will take their word for it. And I can honestly say... Even going into this, obviously, I, I was I was reserved. I, I'm reserved about reserved about everything that I watch because, especially with a TV series, because a TV series can go a multitude of different ways. A TV series can get you right into it. Like I found that with a show called The Blacklist with James Bader. If you haven't seen that, thoroughly recommend. It goes a little bit goes a little bit kilter in um off kilter in. In later seasons, but but for that season, it's um it's it's really fantastic. Um, but then you have other seasons like, and I will say it, even though the other seasons are fantastic, is Breaking Bad. Season one of Breaking Bad was a slow burner, so you can either have something that gets you right into it that's a slow burner, or something that may somewhere be in the middle that's just setting the characters or whatever. But I can honestly say, and it was, it's eight episodes in the first season, so it's like, oh, and somewhere like a little bit over, a little bit under. It's about eight hours worth of television. And I watched that in a day. In a 24-hour period, because obviously I was busy, but I watched, <laughs> I watched that entire season in, in a day. Because I was just blown away by it. I was absolutely blown away by how how upfront i suppose they were they were about the context they they wasted no time they wasted no time settling us into this into this world of superheroes because that's the thing it's not just a superhero story there's also a drama behind it as well, interactions between the superheroes and other characters. There's there's obviously action sequences where you get to see the superheroes being superheroes, and you see some really good slow motion effects, especially right in the first episode where one of the superheroes, Queen Maeve, stops a truck from crashing into two teenagers, and she just stands in front of it, and you see all the debris and all the car parts of the engine just around her, because it's obviously crushed around her frame. Um, and then in, <laughs> and then in parts, it's also this very black comedy, very black comedy. Um, it's, and, and it's these, it's this plethora of genres sort of entangled into one sort of thing that makes it so special. It, it's not, it's not just your typical superhero show. It's not just your typical, typical show either because it's not trying to be any anything particular it's bouncing around all these different ideas but all these different ideas work they all work there's no element of them where one genre feels forced and is say entrenching on another genre nothing nothing like that ever 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 happens in this in this show each genre is complementing the other 
especially when you've got such a contrast of genres like comedy and, and drama. And at times it can be a very, very emotive and it can be very, very serious at times. And then at other times, you you find yourself laughing. Not at the same thing, of course, but... It, and it's that... I think it's that nice contrast in a TV show that's good. And it, it keeps you on your toes. It keeps you thinking... It keeps you thinking what's going to happen next. It keeps building that suspense. But it's not like in a necessarily a cliffhanger sort of way. There are cliffhangers. A couple of those I might talk about in a bit. But it's keeping you on your toes, not knowing whether you're going to laugh or whether you're going to find yourself coming close to crying next. It's um, it, it's it's definitely one of those shows. It's And that's just what I thought was so clever about it because this show is existing in a world where if you imagine with Justice League or the Avengers, if I think of any sort of superhero group, for example, they've, they take place, well, especially in the first Avengers film, where no one has really met these heroes before. The world is very new to the concept of heroes and the concept of superheroes teaming up as a group. And the world is very fresh on that concept and, you know, they're allowed to do whatever they like. This takes place long Long after we are first introduced somewhat to superheroes. Because the show takes place starting with a group called the Seven. The Seven are the essential poster boy or poster girl um, superheroes. The Seven superheroes who are contracted or who work for a company or owned from what of a better word, by a company called Vought International. And Vought International prioritises in the management of some 200, I think, superheroes across... Well, I think a couple of thousand across um, America. But the seven are sort of like the elite group. Like the elite group. I suppose you could say that they're like... The seven Arta superheroes in the boys' universe are what Oxford and Cambridge are to universities. Let's say they're the, the higher echelon of the universities, the highest echelon. The seven is the highest echelon of superheroes. And you see how the company has this very weird, hostile, tiptoe relationship with them all. And it's... It's that, it's that continuous sense of, that, that continuous sense of, you've got all this advertising, you've got all, you've got all this merchandising and things like this, and these superheroes have become sensationalized, and they've become products by Vought, and you see the impact, obviously the consumerism has had on these superheroes as well. And their effort to commercialize them just goes to show, in some ways, really, how these superheroes feel that they can abuse their powers on two different frameworks. One, they feel like they're just an object and just a product that's being used. But then, on the other hand, they feel like they feel like these people love me so much 
they're not going to worry if I do a couple of things to, I don't know, perhaps exert my power in ways not deemed quite ethical. And that sort of leads them down the path that they pursue in the show. And you got a great cast as well. You got a great cast in the boys. You got Anthony Starr, who plays the primary antagonist and leader of the Seven Homelander, who was also in another TV series called Banshee, which I'm familiar with. I've seen a couple of episodes of, but I haven't watched too much of it. What I what I did see was was pretty good. Um, and you've also got Carl Urban, and I knew his face was familiar. I knew it. I knew his face was familiar. He um. I know him from um, Thor, Thor Ragnarok. He had quite a humorous role in Thor Ragnarok, but he was also the titular character in Dread. Um, he played Judge Dread, and he was also Leonard McCoy in the Star Trek reboot trilogy, which which is particularly interesting as well. So he's so he's been around the film scene a bit. You've also got Simon Pegg, who was a supporting who was in a supporting role as one of the boys' father. And we'll talk a little bit more about who the boys are. We talked about the seven, but we haven't been introduced to the concept of the boys yet. So we'll, so we'll talk about those in a bit. But he was, it's actually really interesting because Simon Pegg for Dyke Robinson and Gareth Ennis was the visual inspiration for his character in the comic when that was actually written. So it was quite cool that he actually came back and got into this role and in fairness to him in fairness to him for a British actor doing an American accent or an American actor doing a British accent that transition from one transatlantic state of speech to another is is in fairness there are bits where it drops out and you can see that he slips he slips too easily into you know a non-rhotic style of speaking compared to the rhotic style, which is where in America, you know, you pronounce the R, as I've talked about in a previous episode. But it's... In, it, it, it's good. It, it, it's only when you really want to notice it, it slips out. But, I mean, I like Simon Pegg anyway. I, I think Simon Pegg's a pretty good actor, of course. He found a lot of acclaim on... Um, Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz working with Edgar Wright, but I like him in the um, in the Mission Impossible films too. I think I think he's got quite a nice a nice quirky role in that, and he's got a lot of good budding buddy cop kind of chemistry going there with Tom Cruise, which is which is always nice to see in a film. You always want chemistry between actors, and you've also got you've also got and again I recognised her face and I was thinking. I know who she is. I know who you are, and it's bugging me. Elizabeth Shue, who plays Madeline Stillwell, who is, I think, not the CEO, but she's sort of a, a in a high level position at um at Vought, who's sort of responsible for the Seven and sort of manages the Seven. She was in the Karate Kid as Ali. She was also in Back to the Future 2 and 3, which is which is because she took over, I think, I think, if I remember correctly, the actress who played her in the first film, Claudia Wells, Claudia Grace Wells, she, 
I think her mother, and I, I could be right, I think something happened with her mother. Uh, there was a personal circumstance with her mother, and she had to drop out of filming. And obviously Elizabeth Shue picked up the role when they did a brief reshoot of that scene in in Back to the Future 2, right at the end of Back to the Future, and she obviously returned in Back to the Future 3. She was also in Leaving Las Vegas, opposite Nicolas Cage, and she had an Academy Award nomination for Best Actress. And then, he's introduced briefly in episode 8 of the first season, and he has a much more prominent role in season 2, which I will not discuss, because as I said... Well, I'll try not to discuss because it's oh, it's it's difficult when when I've watched them all so close together. But Giancarlo Esposito. Some of you might be thinking, hmm, who is that? I I know that name. That that name is that name is familiar. Well, he's been in a show called Once Upon a Time, which my mother and my girlfriend have actually watched. And they, they both say it's very good. But a lot of people will know him for the very, very sinister role. But, oh, brilliant role he has as Gus Fring in both Breaking Bad and its spin-off, Better Call Saul, which I believe is set about seven or eight years before be- before the events of Breaking Bad. And he's fantastic, and he's he's, he's, abs- he's a brilliant actor, and he has a very clever way of playing someone who's very overly nice, and you can tell there's something a little bit more mysterious, mysterious about them, and then the cracks start to show, and they become so much more sinister. He's a fantastic actor. He's he's really really good in Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, and for the one episode you see him in. In episode eight, he's brilliant, and for his increased prominence in season two, he's also very good as well. But we'll, as I said, we'll save that for the next episode when I talk more about season two. And I've said a bit about what it's about, and I've and I've discussed the seven, and I've discussed the boys, and I haven't really discussed the connection between the two. As I mentioned. We are in a world, we're transported to a world where superheroes are idolised and held on this glorified sort of pedestal. And they start to realise that because they are positioned in such high esteem by people, that they can really do whatever they want. They can do whatever they want, or more to the point, they think they can do whatever they want. And I think it was really emphasizing early on. As I mentioned, this is not your typical superhero show, your typical show. Because we start off with this nice interaction of a lad named Huey who works at I think like a video a video store, like a tech store. And his girlfriend, Robin, comes into the shop. They have this little nice exchange and they head on out. He's holding her arms, um, and she's got and she had one foot. She's got one foot off the pavement onto the street, and then all of a sudden, the camera stops, or we think it stops. It's actually in extremely slow motion, 
And all of a sudden, all this blood starts going on Huey's face. Then the camera speeds up. And you look over, and you see a man who's just run through a girl. Blood's gone everywhere. And Huey's just holding her arms. Her arms just completely severed, but he's just holding them as he was. And the man who we come to know as A-Tring, who's essentially this TV show's answer to The Flash. Or Quicksilver for the Marvel fans too. He just says, I'm sorry, I, I can't stop. And just keeps going. And that's that was a huge whoa. Okay, I mean, I know the superheroes abuse their powers, but come on, that that's really throwing it out of there. And it was it was perfect because Jack Quaid, who, who very well plays the character of Huey, you could see. The sheer shock and disbelief in his face. The sheer surprise over what A-Train had just done. And you felt that. I felt that. I was like, how could they just so recklessly do this? They, they These are people, enhanced people, who have this, this such position of power and authority. We would never think that a superhero would be capable of doing something so heinous, but they are. And that's what I think was so clever about this show early on. Is that it was reminding us of the dark places that the show can go to very early on. And it doesn't stop there. Because then we transition to um, the character played by Aaron Moriarty, who is also fantastic in this, of Annie. And Annie is a suburban girl who has superpowers, she has the ability to control light, um, and she auditions to become the seventh member of the Seven, after one of their own has sadly passed, well not sadly passed, I think there was, I think there was a bit more to meet the meets the eye there, if I can remember, but she auditions to get into the Seven, she gets into the seven, and it's at this point where there's this big sort of press reveal, and she comes out, and she's sort of shown to everyone like she's some sort of market product, which just shows to, goes to show how objectified essentially they all are in the sense that they are just not really treated like human beings with their own feelings. They're just treated like products for Vought to show off to the world and for Vought to profit off. But she doesn't sort of realise that, I, I don't think at that point, she just sort of in the moments, sort of starstruck, pun intended by everything, and just so grateful to be in this position. And then, and then we're introduced to a character called the Deep, and the Deep is essentially the Amazon's answer to Aquaman or Namor, a character who can control sea life and aquatic life, and can breathe underwater... And we, and we learn they have sort of this seemingly seemingly nice exchange at first, of where she's taken up to, taken up to the office 
where they all work and that she sees sort of like the room where they all sit and everything and she's just innocently talking about how she how she sort of had a crush on him and everything and he see he just seems like he's laughing not just playing it off and you we the camera turns to her and then the camera turns away and you see how shocked she is and we and we're greeted with this very sort of disturbing scene of the deep essentially pleasuring himself to what she's saying you don't obviously see it from the front angle but you see from you know what's going on you don't need to directly directly see it to understand how inappropriate the deep is being and then starlight freaks out and and gets angry for a moment and shatters some of the screens in the room and the deep basically makes out that he's more powerful than he is in the seven that he's like second in command we come to learn that he's a lot more insignificant but he but he takes advantage of starlight's initial enthusiasm and initial hopes for the seven and exploits that against her by coercing her into performing oral sex on him to prevent him revealing revealing to the others what she'd initially done and making her making her worry that Scooby she would get she would get booted out of the seven. And these two instances happen very early on in the first episode. Very early on. And we are we are immediately... It's not just the horror of what A-Train's done. It's the sheer disgust of what The Deep has done to Starlight as well. And we we feel... We feel very early on as we're supposed to feel very sorry for Starlight. Because you can see... She's not... She hasn't been tarnished with the same brush. She's not corrupted by all these superheroes. She doesn't feel that she can abuse her power. She's just a very innocent, genuinely nice person who wanted to join the Seven to actually do good in the world. Unlike, as we see from A-Train, who thinks he can just run through people and it'd be okay. And the Deep, who can sexually assault people and find that's okay as well. Which, in no in no stretch of the word, is that okay? And you can't, you, you can't fathom, you can't fathom the mind of someone like that, of someone who thinks that that's appropriate to do. And that's why I think it was, it was important, I think, to show that even superheroes who can be who can be sort of held in these in these great great pedestals can actually do the most heinous things on multiple different levels and introducing us to those ideas really early on in in the boys was very important to helping us understand the inner workings of this universe and the inner workings of of Vought International, and that 
now all of a sudden we're asking all these questions. Are Vought who they say they are? You've got all these superheroes who were contracted to Vought to do all these things for them. But are they... Are they all in on it? Do they do they know what these superheroes do? What these superheroes are capable of? Do they condone it? Who knows? And it's set in that early suspense on early on in the early on in the show that gives us a platform to expand upon later. But that's not the last event that I want to talk about with the beginning of the series. And amidst that darkness. A bit of hope comes comes from it, and we see in the aftermath of the accident with Robin, Huey's back working at the hardware store, and a man walks in, a seemingly shady figure, his name is Billy Butcher. Claims he with the feds, the FBI. And that he wants Huey's help on something. Huey's help on taking down the Seven. Or disgracing the Seven. And we're like, okay. Okay, that's, that's pretty interesting. Now, now this... But it, it doesn't... It doesn't feel like a revenge, like a let's go out and seek vengeance kind of thing. It it feels like there's a lot more framework there because you've seen the capabilities of what the Seven can do. You realise how truly awful these people are. And you're like, yeah, you go for a hooey. Yeah, let's, let's see what you can do to take down the Seven. So, hooey's a bit um, reserved at first. But Billy basically makes him go to the Vought headquarters, the Vought Tower, sign sign his non-disclosure agreement after the accident, where he was paid off essentially 45 grand to keep it quiet by Vought. Which just goes to show, really, not how quickly and how powerful Vought must be to act in sort of these situations, but also... The fact that Vought seemed to think is acceptable for A-Train to do the things that he did. And maybe at this point, we, we don't know about the Deep. But later on, we do sort of have more of an answer there. And it's where, essentially, the Deep is sent off when it sort of more comes to light regarding his his sexual harassment of multiple women. Of how he abuses abuses his power. And he's sort of sent away by Vought. And it's, I think, I think it, I'm not sure if it was stated, but it was definitely, definitely very clearly implied that they obviously know. Oh, no, no, I apologise. They did know because Madeline Stillwell said, and what about all the, what about all the others who will come forward? So it shows that the Deep has a history and a track record of doing horrible things like this to people who don't deserve it at all. And he goes, and anyway, B- Billy goes. Billy goes back to 
not not Billy, sorry, Huey goes back to the Vought Tower and is given a little tracker by Billy to place into the table in the boardroom. After after signing this non-disclosure agreement where he wants to shake hands with A-Train and look him in the eye and have A-Train say he's sorry. And you could say A-Train really doesn't give much of a crap. He doesn't, doesn't really care, he doesn't have much... It's too apathetic to bother himself with such insignificant problems. To him, at least. <laughs> and then... He re- and then after going to the bathroom and then come, in, come back into the boardroom and actually building up the nerve to place it under the desk, he shakes Adrian's hand, walks out and meets back up with Billy. And then he gets back to the hardware store and translucent. Another member of the seven walks in. At this point, Huey's freaking out because Translucent was hiding in the toilet and Translucent shoves his, um, is basically shoved against a wall by Billy's car. So Billy comes to rescue Huey and then they essentially taser him and electrocute him because his, his skin is made with copper that lets him, um, lets him go invisible or turn invisible. And they put him in the trunk of Billy's car, and then they sort of drive off. And that's sort of how the first episode ends. And then Huey is immediately sucked into this world where Scooby, he becomes he becomes a fugitive, and he starts to learn more about himself and what he's capable of. And that quite nicely takes me into the next segment, which is talking about the transformation of Huey as a character in this TV series. Because he starts off as this very scared, naive kid who wants to live in his little bubble, who wants his world around him to be to be safe. You know, he's he's living with his father, he idolizes the seven in his room, and he's obviously got a loving girlfriend of Robin. But that is all taken from him in the moment where he realizes Nah, the seven, the seven are not who I thought I was when Robin is murdered by A-Train. And he, and there are a few particular interactions. It's, it's when he's obviously taken off by Billy. He knows he can't return because he's got, they've got one of the seven. And eventually, after, (laughs) and this is one of the more, humorous moments where they insert sort of a bomb up Translucent's um, um, anus. <laughs> and, oh, it's, um, that's an interesting scene and and Translucent has an opportunity to walk away. Huey knows what he has to do. Huey knows what he has to do when, when Translucent escapes. And Translucent tries to tell him, look, you just gotta let me walk. I'm not gonna say anything, but you gotta let me walk. Huey, at this point, Huey has grown from that very naive person he was at the start. Someone who realises that he has to take, in this situation, a bit of initiative. And he has to take matters into his own hands. And detonates. 
and translucent basically basically implodes from what Huey does. And I think that was a very big turning point for Huey. Because from that moment on, yeah, he was sort of there with Billy and, and the character of, of Frenchie, who's who's very, very good as well. He's he sort of just on the periphery of that world. He's not immersed in it. He's sort of just there, you know, sort of with with Bully, waiting, waiting to ask questions about A Train, and waiting to see what the purpose of A Train's visit was that morning, when he was, when he was running, so abruptly and obviously ran through Robin, and he he actually kills him, and. That was so, so poignant, actually. Such a poignant moment very early on in the series. Where Huey understands his duty of responsibility to, to these new people in his life. That he now has to help them. But then it's him making that step. Making that step from one world a world of comfort with his father, sat watching TV on the sofa, eating pizza rolls, something very innocent, having a lovely girlfriend, to something more darker. And he's going into that world of Billy Butcher's, of Billy Butcher's world of somewhere that... a point of no return if you will, somewhere that unfortunately Billy knows in himself, uh, that Huey knows in himself, that now he's made this decision, now he's pressed that trigger, the, he will never, ever have a normal life. Well, he may going forward eventually in in season three or season four, and I, and I hope it keeps getting renewed, because it's absolutely fantastic, but for the moment, he's just got to stick it out. And after and it and you know what I also really love about Huey, and you see it more in this scene where Billy's supposed to have more faith in him. It's this this sort of tense, complex relationship that he has with Billy that runs through the entire show, especially into season two, but a lot in season one as well, where he realizes that Billy isn't a fed. And I think that was pretty self-explanatory. To anyone watching, yeah, this guy ain't a fed. We know there's something a bit more shady about him. But we learn he was a former operative with the CIA. And he's got something against the boys. But we don't know what. And Billy ultimately just wants Huey to be something bigger, I think. He wants him... He can see this nice little reserve bubble that Huey has going on. And he's trying to break him out of his shell. And he's trying to awaken him to the bigger problems. Because as we come to learn... Billy's wife... Was raped by Homelander. The leader of the Seven. And she disappears and is presumed dead. Billy first hand... Has seen 
what the seven are capable of. And this was eight years ago. So Billy is living with this about eight years on. He's seen firsthand what the seven can do. And when something similar happens to Huey, where a person he cares about is taken from her, then Billy sees... Then Billy... Billy sees something of himself, I think, in Huey. Because Billy knows what it's like in that moment to feel completely empty, to feel like you have nothing. To feel like you've lost everything. And he wants to channel Huey's anger into a situation where I suppose they can help one another. He can come off it a bit selfish at times, but I think ultimately... Ultimately, I think just Billy just sees himself... He sees himself in Huey and he sees how he was that naive, scared younger man when his wife disappeared after what happened with Homelander. And he goes on this vengeful path to end the Seven. And he has someone else who could have a similar motive and they have this sheer goal in common. And it sort of sets up this really nice adventure going forward. Not adventure, but this pursuit of revenge. For what of a better word, I think. Or better words. He just... Billy just wants... Billy just wants Huey to realise that he is not the naive kid that he thinks he is. That he's so much bigger than that. And he can be so much bigger than that. And it's Billy who gives him the confidence to plant the bug. Early on under the boardroom. And essentially to kill Translucent. Yes he's doing things which are. Not necessarily correct. But. He is. He is growing. He's increasing his confidence. And he's stepping more, he's subtracting more and more and more from the idyllic life that he has, the sheltered life that he has with his father. And as the season goes on, we see how this relationship continuously unravels between them. And they become closer and then a bit further away. And then ultimately, closer again and they realise how important they are to one another and how much they need one another. Unfortunately, though, I wouldn't quite say he's as bad. Oh, God, no, he's not as bad as the Seven Jesus, but it's that similar idea of that confidence and newfound control over your life that gives you more of a platform, that can give you more of a platform and more potential to abuse it. And I do love the character of Huey, not, but not just for positive reasons, but also the negative reasons that he's taken on, and the way the the sort of relationship and the conflict that he has with Starlight, because excuse me, he meets Starlight on a park bench, discreetly, and very 
subtly without making reference to either situation. Starlight, of course, talking about how visions of the Seven are collapsing. And Huey talking about his new place in the boys and what that means for him and his future and his lack of confidence to do anything. They eventually become closer, pursue a more intimate sexual relationship, but he lies to her about who he is. And she finds out. And you realise that Huey's treatment of her is very unfair in that because because the problem is he's he's Huey's so interesting because he's put in this middle situation of conflict between on the one hand at the very stark end you have Billy Butcher. Billy Butcher doesn't like superheroes. Billy Butcher hates anything to do with superheroes whatsoever. Then you have Starlight. Starlight seems to be someone who is very different from the rest of the Seven, and Huey can see that. But unfortunately, Billy can't, because Billy is so blindly focused on killing all of them, on killing all soups, hating all soups, and judging them all the same, tarnishing them all with the same brush. And he can't see... But Starlight is so distinguishable from the others. And Huey can. And Billy draws Huey into a life of more espionage and being more risky and, and savvy in some of the, how we might say, legal things that he does in his questioning, his direct attitude to... Eugene, the religious figure, and and cloning Starlight's phone. But then he also wants to have a relationship with Starlight, and I think, I think Huey, it shows even though Huey has that confidence, this newfound confidence, he still carries these strings of naivety with him. He wants a situation both ways, and. I think if he were honest with himself, he knows that he can't have them both ways. But he's trying to make them last for as long as possible. Which comes to the detriment of upsetting Billy. Because Billy is peeved off that he always lied to him and has continued to pursue a relationship with Starlight despite being told against. And warned against. And then Starlight is also peeved off because she feels completely used by him. By someone who she thought she could trust. And he was using her. But then he did also have feelings for her. Very strong feelings. And unfortunately he just didn't respect her as much as he should have done. And he didn't use those feelings in the proper manner. To show her how much he cared. And instead he saw an opportunity to help Billy help himself, and feel like he was helping Starlight. And that's what I think... That's why I think Huey's character is so interesting, because we see him become something greater than himself, and we're like, yeah, go Huey. 
and then he does this, something that the old Huey wouldn't have been capable of, and we're a bit like, hang on a minute now. Come on, this this isn't you, Huey. This isn't you. And I think he's coming into a conflict with himself all the time, and he's wrestling with his conscience in terms of what he feels he can and can't do. And he starts acting a bit more bravado and thinking thinking more highly of himself. And we see that with Starlight, where he feels like he's in this sort of position of not necessarily power, but in a position where he has an opportunity to meet someone, for someone to meet this new side of him that that they haven't seen before, and he has an opportunity to test almost this side. And he uses the, he uses Starlight to test this new this new confident persona that he has for what is ultimately a selfish gain. And their relationship sort of rejuvenates on a more civil, friendly level at the end of season eight, uh, season eight, episode eight, and then is sort of explored more in season two of I Won't Talk About, but it's that, those initial impressions of that he thinks he can sort of, now that he's sort of in with the boys, yeah, I can... I've okay. I, I've I've just murdered Starlight, and this is not, not Starlight translucent. I can. I'm you know. I've I've got more control over the seven now, and I think that ultimately comes to his detriment. And he learns a lesson the hard way. That he was sort of trying innocently to please everyone, and it was coming off in all the wrong ways. And he was doing it in all the wrong ways by trying to please everyone, and he realizes that he just has to act morally, selflessly, and just overall honestly with everyone around him. And that's, I think, what... And this is what one of the things that I like so much about the boys. It's you're taking these characters in all these different directions, in all these different directions and taking them down all these different paths and having all these experiences that shape them for better or worse. You are not necessarily saying that one character is entirely good or one character is entirely bad. In some frames, you are. But then you're also there are also opportunities for, for bad characters to make amends, good characters to become more corrupt. And it's these complex, interchangeable personalities that are a huge driving force behind the show that I love. As I come towards the end of this episode, and obviously, as I've said, the second season is currently in progress. Once that finishes, I'll make an episode on that. And then there's been it's been renewed for a third season, so there'll be an episode on that too. But one character that I think is very complex and very intriguing to me for both is positive for, for his very minute positive aspects but largely is very negative ones is the character of Homelander 
And at first glance, he seems like this glorified Superman ripoff. He's got the laser eyes, he can fly, he's indestructible, indestructible, excuse me. He can't see through zinc, I think, whereas Superman can't see through lead. You've got all these similarities and you're like, oh, this just feels like such a carbon copy. But it isn't. Not at all. Not in the slightest. Because, in actual fact, Homelander is something much darker. And in the first episode, where we have this very, right at the start, I think right at the start, where... There's sort of like that that um, robbery that is stopped by the server. We see Homeland, you know, you boys okay? Um, teaming up with Queen Maeve. And they're like, yeah, sure, can we get a photo? And Homeland is all smiling. He's like, of course. And he smiles with them. And everything seems hunky-dory. And even with the deep situation with the deep and the situation with A-Train, we're like, hmm, maybe Homelander isn't aware he isn't aware of of who of who the deep really is and who A Train really is, and perhaps he's more of a more of a docile member of the Seven who is actually morally right and is more like a Superman style figure. Oh no 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 no! Because at the end of the first episode. He's in a meeting that an ambassador has with Madeline Stilwell, where he mentions something called Compound V. And he flies home that evening. And even though she didn't ask him to, there's this scene where Homelander is flying outside the window and the ambassador's son notices it. And and the kid's like, oh, it's Homelander. And the ambassador's like, wait, what? And we're a bit like, wait, what? Hang on now. And then Homelander's eyes light up. And he shoots the plane down. Killing everyone on board instantly. And you're just like, oh, shit. Because it's that moment where you realise... There are no saving graces in the set. Apart from Starlight, that said about early on. But in regards to the others, all the other members that have been there the whole time, there are no saving graces. And it's this exact moment we realise this character isn't who he says he is. And we realise how much the boys, well, Billy Butcher... And Frenchie earlier on, early on, and then Huey when he becomes more part of the boys, how much they, how much they desire to seek revenge against these superheroes who really are abusing their powers, really are abusing their powers. 
But it's it's really interesting because even with the first time we see him, even that first segment where he where he saves the boys and that he has a photo with them. His smile, there was something about his smile. It it seemed forced, misplaced. We had this impression almost immediately where I was questioning, is he, is he who he seems? We'll give him the benefit of the doubt and see what happens. And then by the end of the episode, no. Any hope of believing that is completely dismantled into four million pieces. Completely dismantled. And then, but then I think that's great because now we know that he's pretty much a prick. Now we can spend the rest of the season learning about why he is so much of one. And more so than the other boys' characters... Homelander is used by the um by the um by the show essentially as the primary antagonist and the forefront and the embodiment of how corrupt the seven really are. And one of those moments is obviously well his positive interaction is not positive, God not not positive, possessive interactions with me apologies i am i read i read that wrong in my notes is how possessive he is with her because we learned that they used to date one another there were more romantic feelings there but we realize that homelander is is taking advantage of her now and and when they are and when they are sort of on this pedestal, I think it's I think it's in the race one when they wave into the crowd and he's sort of brushing her hair, and he's teasing more of a romantic relationship. He's using the crowd. She's visibly uncomfortable, but he's forcing her into that scenario. And he makes her feel very powerless, very feeble. This is someone who stood in who stood in front of a truck. In the first episode. And Homelander is making her feel like nothing. It shows on a superhero level. How powerful it must be. But then it also shows how corrupt he is. That he really does think that he is something special. That he thinks that he can speak to anyone. However he wants to. Whoever and however. And... That's not the other, that's not the first time he has that very possessive relationship with with Maeve. A possessive interaction. It's also in the form of, it's also in the form of a very sad instance of where he, where he causes a plane to crash. And he causes this plane crash by being asked by Stillwell on a transatlantic flight, which they are currently allowed to op- um, operate on, because it's sort of an American. It's either an American flight or it's coming into America. So I think it's leaving America. It's going over the Atlantic, 
and him and Maeve are recruited on board to try and help out. And whereas he could, he could easily, as Maeve points out, go back a hundred or so times and take everyone off. He just can't be asked. You can't be asked because he's he's just too good to save any of these people, and these people aren't worth his time. And then apologies for all the yawning, by the way. I'm I'm recording this quite early in the morning. Um, he he chooses. He doesn't decide that, like may suggest, that he could hold the plane up from underneath and smash right through the hole. We know full well he's not going to smash right through the hole because he's so powerful. He has control over how he can use his power. He can smash right through the hull if he wants to. He can shoot the entire plane down, as we saw with the Ambassador's plane. But we know he could save them. We know he's capable of doing that. It just boils down to one simple thing. He just doesn't want to. And when they're begging him to save them, he all of a sudden gets all really nasty and and sinister with his laser eyes telling them to shut up and keep their place and everything and he holds out his hand and says Maeve we've got to go because he, he just decides there's nothing they can do to save them well there is but he just doesn't want to Maeve knows that they could have done it and she sees a child with her mother with a little teddy and, and she drags them and is begging them to save just these two at least just these two Two innocent lives who don't deserve this. Amongst all the innocent lives on the on the plane. And Homelander just goes now. And she takes his hand. And she takes his hand and says and tells him she's sorry. And just goes. And they watch from afar. Over the plane. As the plane crashes into the ocean. And... Homelander knows that he did it, but he just watches, doesn't care. You can see the remorselessness in his eyes. He's not bothered, he's not phased by what he's just done. Whereas Maeve is just in awe and in horror over how heinous Homelander really is. And this 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 must be one of the more heinous things that he's done. And again, it's reinforcing that control that he seemingly has over her. That she, that she realizes as powerful as she is. Maybe she's not as strong as Homelander. Morally, she's much, she's much stronger than him, and emotionally, she's probably much stronger than him. But she, she's just in such a feeble position, where he where he just takes advantage of that all the time, and exploits her. And stops her from acting in the morally best interest because she has she has a fellow superhero who is capable of stopping her. Where she can stand in front of her stand in front of her a lorry and stop it and and completely and crush it and everything. She can't do that with Homelander. Homelander is just as powerful, if not on a superhero level, more technically powerful with his powers. I'm I'm not quite sure. I don't think we've seen the full extent of what Maeve is capable of, what Queen Maeve is capable of. But we do know the Homelander is... They, they're a match for one another. 
and they could definitely hurt one another, but she's just... She's just getting drawn more and more into the mentality the Starlight has early on. That she was very... She was very hopeful of the Seven, and she must have had a very positive opinion of Homelander once upon a time to go out with him. But then... As time went on, she just became more cynical and more negative, more realistic about the man I suppose she idolised. Until now, she's just forced into this powerless position where she feels that she can do nothing. And he believes that he's got total control over her. And that, I think, is a dynamic that I'd like to see more explored in Season 2 and hopefully more explored in Season 3 how Maeve can slowly start to take ownership back over him and step out of that little bubble. And there's a character in season two that gives her more of a platform to do that, that makes her, that re- that makes her feel, feel again. That makes her feel whole and makes her realise that she doesn't need to have a domineering figure of Homelander in her life. But that'll be safe for episode two. And for anyone who's up to date on the boys, you can probably guess what I'm talking about, but we'll save that for the next season episode. What I... But... Homelander, in one of the few sort of positive strands that that I like the character, I think he's an interesting character is we can see, ultimately, Homelander is a very troubled superhero. A very troubled superhero. He's very cynical and repulsive of those around him. And I think this resonates a lot from childhood trauma. Because as we come to learn, superheroes, they ain't born, they're made. And and even Homelander, who was basically parents volunteered to send the um send the children to vault, have them injected with compound V, and given different superheroes depending on how they reacted would determine what superpowers they had. And there's these sort of flashback sequences of these these um. Labrats doing tests on Homelander at a young age and he's got this blanket with him and he has that sort of flashback sequence when Homelander returns to his house he looks at all of his surroundings and he sees this blanket and it brings back this memory this horror of those painful experiences that he went through and not that it's any justification for the person that he's become but it sheds a bit of light on how he essentially feels he doesn't want an allegiance to anyone, not even vote, not even humanity or society. He wants to just serve himself. And it's unfortunate that in him trying to take ownership back of his life, it's actually to the detriment of many innocent people around him. But it's 
it's that conflict within himself that I think he knows. Ultimately, I think Homelander knows that he could be something. He could be something great. He could be something. He could be a hero to the people. I think he knows that. He just doesn't... He just doesn't feel he can because of what he experienced as a child. And he sends himself down this horrible path doing all these malicious and cruel things to people who don't deserve them. From sexually assaulting Billy's wife to letting a, a commercial airline full of innocent people die to possessively controlling Maeve, to just abusing his power in every sense of the word, when in reality he could be something much greater. And I think he feels that the life that he had as a child has conditioned him to this vengeful, cynical path. Not that, as I said, it's any means of a justification for the way he acts. But it does offer some explanation on why he thinks that he can act the way he can. Because he's just so fed up of everyone around him. He's so mistrusting of those that he's just he's just had it with absolutely everything. And especially as the seasons go on, I would like to see Homelander break down more and more. And this evil, corrupting, almost facade that he's putting on for himself, that he's just channeling his anger into these most heinous things, rather than opening up about his feelings and letting himself be corrupted where he could be redeemed. I'd like to see him making slow steps to a redemption of sorts. There's no, there's no fully redeeming the things that he's done, but more of an acknowledgement of the pain and the guilt that he suffers and the trauma that he's continuously trying to bury within his character arc. What's great about a TV series is a lot of the themes from the first season generally carry throughout. Of course, there are some storylines and plot lines that are buried, but character developments, these are things that are continuous, that don't ever stop for any purpose as you introduce more characters you introduce more events of either a, a cataclysmic or a peaceful nature that disrupt each character's livelihood you see them change in one way or another for better or worse and there are lots of things about the boys about the seven that i haven't talked about in today's podcast but that doesn't mean I don't have a platform to expand upon them in the future. One that I, I think I will definitely talk about in either the next episode or the episode after is Starlight. Starlight's a fantastic character and has these fantastic instances of character development. But I'm just I'm just holding off and I'm gonna I'm gonna see where the next season and seasons take her. And on that note, I think it's time to end the podcast here. And there's nothing else for me to say, but as always, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. If you are new around here and if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, 
please feel free to leave me a review. That always helps me out. But if you have any queries or episode suggestions or anything you want to just chat about with me regarding the stuff that I talk about in these episodes, feel free to DM me at the Cinerealm podcast. Or you can always email me at cinerealmpodcast at outlook.com. So to everyone listening, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And I will see you soon for another episode. And stay safe, stay safe, everyone out there, and take care. Bye-bye.